Welcome back to Behold the Lion. Today we'll be talking about the section of the Nicene Creed that reads, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So this immediately raises questions. What is this baptism that Christians tend to engage in? Some of them are called Baptists. We've got John the Baptist uh, in, in the Bible. What's what's this? What's baptism? What does it mean that it's for the forgiveness of sins? What's the creed saying here? I'm joined by Rory today. Say hi, Rory. Yeah. Hello, hello. Yeah. Uh, Joel couldn't make it out, but we'll have a we'll have a, a closer conversation, I suppose, about what baptism is, different views on baptism, where we see it in Scripture, what it means, and this this connection of it to the forgiveness of sins. All right. Mm-hmm. So, where should we start? Let's let's see. Where do we see baptism in Scripture? What are its roots? Is it has it always been a purely Christian thing in the way we might think about it? Well, I'd say that. We clearly see it in the New Testament. It's not something that you see in the Old Testament as any sort of mandate from God. There, obviously, there, people, there are different washings that people would do in Judaism, and it seems like baptism is coming out of that context. Where uh, even like even in rabbinic Judaism, after the like you see this in the Gemara, the idea people will often have a ritual. Um, cleansing in water mm-hmm. prior to being admitted into Judaism. So that itself seems to be a post second temple thing because uh, they're trying to come, they're trying to figure things out given how much change there was with the temple being destroyed. Mm-hmm. But there's still it's still definitely ri- arising out of uh, second temple Jewish context where people would be doing these ritual baths to symbolize like ceremonial cleansing. Right, right. We do see some baptism. I mean, fairly, if you start reading at the start of the New Testament, right, you'll see this guy called... Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. We'll see this guy called John the Baptist coming along. uh, As opposed to John the Presbyterian. Right, yeah. (laughs) So he's not, he's not, you know, one of, he's not like a Southern Baptist or one of these other Baptists we have these days. He's a Baptist in the sense that he baptizes people. Uh, What's he doing by that? What's, why is he doing that? Yeah, so he's calling pe- he's calling people to repentance, and that that's definitely the most straightforward straightforward thing that he's doing. And given that John the Baptist at this point, I think there's people forget how within the gospel narratives, the gospel narrative is happening happening entirely in a Jewish context. Sometimes people, and so I think people project a little bit and they don't notice that distinction between the church being founded and uh and the jewish context the, the prior. yeah the pre-church where there there is clearly this sense baptism is happening among the jews as a sign of repentance and uh repentance and cleansing yeah repentance and cleansing i see Okay, so we have John the Baptist coming along, and that's right. He does call people to repentance. He speaks to different groups in society and calls them, in a sense, we might say, to uh, turn from some of their sins, to uh, commit themselves anew to God and to his kingdom. And I suppose baptism, and we'll get more into this, specifically within the Christian context, for now, maybe safe to say that that kind of kicked off their new new lives or symbolized that change of change of heart but that's tricky language and we'll see why later on um so if it represents that if it represents a sort of renewed commitment perhaps even a repentance the greek metanoia kind of changing of mind changing of turning around um from sin to a new life uh, in that case why does jesus need to get baptized 
Um, or why does he get baptized? Because we see that happening. And in his case, uh, we believe he wasn't sinful and didn't necessarily need to uh, repent in that sense. But he does get baptized by John. So I think there's an interesting... I was reading this thing that gave pointed out a rather interesting aspect, which is uh, Jesus in Matthew 21, um, verse 25, asks the Pharisees, um, the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or from men? And uh, he's trapping them in that instance because they don't, they know the people rec recognize John as a prophet, yet they, <laughs> the, except they don't want to acknowledge John's testimony to Christ as the Messiah. But Jesus seems to be implying that John's baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness, like for repentance from sin, was mandated from God. Like John is a prophet, and so this was his, um, John's baptism was from God. So I, I hadn't really thought about that previously, that perhaps this really was like a, like a uniquely mandated thing. So Jesus, he participated in all sorts of aspects of the Jewish system that didn't necessarily appertain to him as far as like, I'm sure he would have participated in everything that was required of him by the law for the day of atonement, for the Passover, for all these rules that were required of him as a Jew. So if uh, the baptism of John was from God, then I think he's, he's being a good Jew and fulfilling the entirety of the law in perfect right in perfect fullness. Right. Right. I see. I see. And we're not necessarily saying then that this baptism was always for the sort of, uh, I don't know how to put it exactly, but Christ wouldn't necessarily have had to um, participate in the um, sacrifices for one's sins, for instance, um, that we might, might, might say. But yeah, this, but this... he still would have participated as a, as a Jew, as a faithful follower of God. And, and also, there's a certain important, a very, very central importance to John the Baptist's testimony to Christ within the original, within the original Palestinian context, where he was a very, that was a very important aspect of pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, and as prophesied by the voice, <laughs> voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight, make straight the, way the, way the, the way of the Lord. Um, John the Baptist, and then Christ's going to John the Baptist, as like has a lot of meaning packed into it, and and John doesn't want to baptize him. Like, who am I to baptize you? I'm not even like he, as he says, the one who comes after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it also is a symbol of Christ's humility, and then also the opportunity for um, that. We, sh we should turn to the passage of his actual baptism, where this is a public context where Christ is affirmed supernaturally. Right. right. Uh, this is Matthew, Matthew 3, verse 13, and this is no no ordinary baptism. Right? No. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So there's your point about this kind of fulfill, fulfilling all righteousness. We see this with regard mm -hmm. to the law uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, that Christ has come to fulfill all these things as well. Or whenever these things are done so that the scriptures may be fulfilled, 
Christ Christ is very conscious of his role of his role in that so then john consented and when jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the waters and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased okay so we have this picture of jesus entering the river jordan and you know being baptized immersed um in the water uh and then he comes up out of the water and uh we have God the Father speaking. We have the Holy Spirit depending on him. What's what's going on here? What, what can we take away from this passage as we... Does it apply to the baptisms that come after in any sense? Or I think there's, there's definitely a distinction that's made in the scriptures between the baptism of John and the baptism of that that is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not like there's... An equivalence here that's entirety it's not i don't think you can just say oh this is the the exact same thing happening and also clearly this is a very unique event with public display of god in his favor um in his favor on jesus but with witnesses with other witnesses as well as the witness of a prophet of god so and a prophet of god that was recognized as such by many of the jews at the time so um, I think I, w- yeah, I would be very, I don't think I could really draw any sort of direct equivalence to our baptism as to what necessarily happens that I'm sure would be contested by, by our Catholic friend who is not here, unfortunately. Right. That is, yeah. The, the clearest parallel I do see is you quoted the Trinitarian formula. It's almost the Trinitarian formula as representing the Trinitarian presence, which we do mm-hmm. see, which we do see at this baptism. But you are right to point out that there's a clear line drawn between the baptism of John and of, of uh, um, you know, that Christ inaugurates, so to yeah. speak. Uh, Christ says in Acts 1.5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There's a diff- there's an interesting, but what? clearly Christ got the Holy Spirit with John's baptism, right? God, at least in some way, right? Right, and so there's something interesting going on here. We're going to play with two ideas, I think, as we go forward. We'll see this idea of water baptism, and we'll also have this idea of the Holy Spirit coming on people, and those are sometimes connected. Um, John speaks of being born of water and of the Spirit in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, in the Book of Acts, there are a couple occasions where the apostles. Maybe they were baptized by John. Uh, maybe they're. Uh, maybe some. They had some form of water baptism before, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them, rather, um, that happens that Christ is predicting in Acts one five happens to them in a different context at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. We'll see other cases in Acts where there are people who have been baptized with water but have not yet received the Holy Spirit until the apostles lay hands on them. Paul meets some people who are baptized with the baptism of John, but mm-hmm. not in the baptism of Christ, and are baptized in the name of Christ, and then receive the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. Mm-hmm. So, all this to say... There's um, a lot going on. All this to say there is a lot going on. It's hard to find a place to start, but um, yeah, where, where, what do you think is a good place to dive in? So, noting that baptism, baptism starts most clearly in the New Testament within a Jewish context with the baptism of John that is from God, and that is not the same as what is mandated by Christ when, he's, when he tells 
He tells all his disciples in Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's the mandate of the Great Commission that goes out everywhere. So I think it's a good place to start with that distinction, while at the same time then recognizing that it is a mandate by Christ to baptize everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, if you look at, let's see, um, Acts 2.38, And Peter said unto them, Repent ye, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins. Um, or in Romans 6, 3 to 5, or are ye ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So there's this, there's clearly a lot of theological significance packed on to the packed into this as far as the nature of union with Christ, the call to repent and believe and receive the, receiving the Holy Spirit. So as far as what the best place to start is, <laughs> I'm sorry, you just were asking, where should we start? I just kind of yeah. touched on a bunch of different I, things, but there's, uh, to tie this together, I'd say it's coming it looks very similar to the baptism of John, but then it is mandated to go to all nations as a symbol of our faith in Christ, like as a right. marker of our repentance right. and belief repentance in and Jesus belief. Christ as our Savior who died for our sins right. and who was resurrected right. in newness of life. That's good. That's good. Uh, I think in Romans too, uh, Romans as well, we'll pick up on some, some, some notion of baptism representing our you know, as you cited, basically our death with him as we, mm -hmm. this is why, um, I mean, in the Bible, will we see, uh, John the Baptist, for instance, conducting baptism by immersion. We'll talk more about different, uh, ways people baptize or, um, and sort of the debate over that later, but, um, sort of going under the water. So representing our death with him sort of, and basically this kind of death and resurrection with Christ is represented by our, our baptism. What does represent mean too is, is going yes. to be a tricky question. But um, yeah, I think, so there is this close idea of identification with Christ yes. via our baptism, our death with him and our new life with him. Yeah. And if you um, read that sort of identification with Christ, especially just if you read through Paul, Col like Colossians, union with Christ, that identification with Christ is everything. It's just so central. Very good, right? And uh, in the early church, there would be preparation for baptism was not a very light thing. You had it was taken um, very seriously. Taken a very seriously, and b, you know, it was very much understood as you know, you're being taken out of one kingdom and put into another. Uh, you were once dead; you're being brought to life. Actually, this ties in nicely with this kind of tension: water baptism and the presence of the Spirit. Insofar as you know, this new life we've we had. Okay, this is. Um, we, we have had conversations uh, about the Spirit as the giver of life. Um, and so, as Christians, we affirm that, we affirm that um, the Spirit is essential to the new life of the Christian, that a Christian is not alive in Christ apart from having received his Spirit, that is the Spirit who empowers the Christian walk. And so, this idea of, do we receive the Spirit upon the symbolism of new life in baptism, 
Um, are we made new by the baptism itself? Or uh, do we receive the Spirit separately before baptism? This is a question that Christians have argued about. For sure. People have definitely <laughs> argued about this. It's, uh, I think we, with the, the, when we were talking about unity, in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that the signs of unity are often the most divisive. <laughs> People divided over the Eucharist, over the Lord's Supper, and over baptism, especially. Um, I would say, obvi like obviously, um, as the Protestant representative here, uh, I would not believe that baptism actually affects the salvation of an individual. I, uh, I know that's not... That's very. That's definitely by far the most predominant view among the Protestant in the Protestant Church. There are some who do not hold to it, such as like the Church of Christ believes in baptismal regeneration. Uh, the Lutheran Church Lutherans, has a formulation some, of baptismal regeneration, though it's a little bit nuanced. Yeah, yeah. Some Anglicans as well, I believe, would hold to yeah, some. Yeah, some. Yeah, but uh, Anglicanism is a whole other. Uh, conversation a whole other ball of <laughs> wax it's, more, it's not really uh, it's, it's not much of a denomination it's sort of this umbrella much. it's, it's an, umbrella. an umbrella with lots of christians under it yeah yeah okay and some uh, you, you, dubious <laughs> we can we can get into this conversation about the protestant view but you did mention this term baptismal regeneration and that is how a lot of christians have historically summarized their view that in a sense, baptism is the typical means by which someone will actually be saved also in a spiritual sense. It's not merely a physical symbol of what's going on. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes. That view? Yes. So there, there's a reason why uh, if like some of the verses that I was reading, um, it's so close, like clearly baptism is very closely associated with our union with Christ and uh, the remission of sins. That's clear in various verses. So it makes sense that a lot in the er a lot of people in the early church seem to have understood it in that way, where you when you are baptized, you profess faith and are baptized, it remits your sins. That's the thing that wipes your slate clean. And uh, I'd say some... It does seem to be a very early view. I've, I've heard, I haven't actually looked into this particularly. I've, I've heard that Tertullian might not be quite as clearly on the baptismal regeneration side. And some of the earliest fathers, like Justin Martyr, it definitely sounds pretty similar to baptismal regeneration, but it's not, some, sometimes it's not super clear. But I'd say by the time of Augustine, it, yes, like, Absolutely, baptismal regeneration is completely dominant, and he expresses it through the um, view, like ex opere operatum, the out of the work worked, that the very performance of the baptism is the thing that produces its its result. The, th the sign and the th thing signified are basically united. Basically the same. For context, this is coming out of the Donatist, heres uh, in response to the Donatists, correct? Is, yes. Uh, yeah. So... Mm -hmm. uh, at least, well, that would definitely be a context in which he uh, is pushed. Augustine was pushed to really flesh out some of, some of his sacramentology. I'd say that personally, in my readings in the early church, the early church, and obviously Joel would disagree with me on this, is very much 
in line with Protestantism on a lot of different issues. I'd say like veneration of images and conception, even some a large number of them conceptions of the authority of scripture in relation to the church. But they do have a very high sacramentology fairly early on. And I'd say that's probably one of the areas where the early church has more continuity with the Catholic church than many Protestant denominations. That said, I don't think it's a simplistic thing that you can say like, oh, the, the Roman Catholic church holds to baptismal regeneration. And so did many of these church fathers, because I don't, I think there are plenty of other issues where there isn't the same alignment. Right. And to, to get into some definitions here for people who might be unfamiliar, a sacrament typically often summarized as an, is it an outward sign of invisible grace, correct? It's like yes. this, this idea that the water of baptism is in fact what does save. The, the Eucharist, the bread and wine, these elements once consecrated are in fact the body and blood of Christ, as opposed to simply saying mm -hmm. that these are you know, symbols, uh, merely symbols. It's tricky to say, you know, uh, what a symbol is, and at one point you draw the line, but uh, within uh, particularly some forms of Protestantism, there's an emphasis that these things do not save in themselves or the elements do not become, in some literal sense, the body and blood of Christ. Um, so also the sacraments are typically recognized um, in most many traditions as the signs of a church, essentially. Absolutely. Um, uh, within the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments recognized, which was more of a later a medieval development, yeah, yeah. arguably. But uh, across Christian denominations, probably baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper would be recognized as the two two yes. most common sacraments. And those are the two that we can see right from the beginning. Sacraments or ordinances is what some, some yes, Christians might call especially, them. Especially Baptists. <laughs> Baptists, right. <laughs> they like their ordinances. Right. So that's the sacramentology side of it. The Donatist situation was basically, there was some persecution going on, some priests fell away and uh, from the faith or denied Christ, and people got worried if this guy baptized me, but then denied Christ, is that baptism still valid? Yes. Um, and uh, Augustine is responding to that, saying the baptism in and of itself, if it was done, you know, with water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, then, you know, that is a valid baptism. Yes. It doesn't matter what happened to that priest afterward. He's more of the vessel by which that grace... Yeah, he, yes, he just communicate. He's, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Yeah, by which that grace is dispensed. So just a little bit of context there. Okay, so that's a, that's a common view in the, in the, um, I mean, certainly in the Catholic Church, um, and again, some Protestant denominations that this baptism is the normal means of salvation. Um, that would seem to be that that would seem to be bolstered, like you said, from some verses. Mark, some verses. Mark, Mark sixteen sixteen. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Um, it would also explain the baptism of infants within those traditions. Within their within their conception, this is you know essential because you want those, uh, you know, particularly in the context of original sin, this kind of cleansing from sin to occur um, mm -hmm. to occur um, early on. Why is there a different view? What is the um, uh, what is that different view, and why is or are there multiple different views, and what's um, what's the concern with the view of baptismal regeneration? Yeah, so. I'd say that a lot of it would be just similar, similarly to how a lot of people's belief in baptismal regeneration does stem from their understanding of a few verses and then very common belief in the, in the early church. Uh, a lot of people's concern 
concerns about baptismal regeneration would also arise from the text of scripture where there does not seem to be quite as much of a tidy alignment between receiving the Holy Spirit and the actual administration of baptism and that it doesn't sometimes um, sometimes it says in Acts um, repent and believe and be baptized for the remission of sins. But a lot of the time it just says repent and believe. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there are a lot of verses that really heavily emphasize that the salvation seems to be coming from the belief in Christ. So obviously, once you hit the Protestant Reformation and people are really trying to reevaluate their theological systems, they're going to look at this and see and question is this doctrine of baptism really undermining our, our emphasis on the necessity for faith in Christ and that being the sole means of our union with Christ through the Spirit? So I think that's where the concerns would go through because it definitely starts to compromise other things. Once you, It's much harder to have, I think, a very quite as strong of a Protestant view of salvation by faith alone once you actually have these, this right. high sacramentology. Right. So the, typically the Protestants will react against this high sacramentology. Now we've talked about how within this high sacramentology, it makes sense to baptize infants, baptize children, um, born to family, Christian families. Um, now, I'm curious, within Protestant circles, even within circles that might reject this uh, high sacramentology, you have some divergence also over the baptism of infants. Mm -hmm. um, from some of the things you said that uh, people are concerned that we're not emphasizing enough the true conversion, true acceptance of the Spirit, true, true presence of the Holy Spirit in one's life uh, before, before as, as, you know, showing that someone is a Christian and, you know, will be baptized. Um so within Baptist circles in particular, you'll have this emphasis, an emphasis on only baptizing adult believers. Um, yes. Adults who are able to... Articulate um, a very clear profession of faith and, and reasons for their belief. Reasons for their belief, to, uh, you know, maybe point to a conversion or point to fruits of the Spirit in their life. Mm -hmm. And then they will be baptized as a... Um, as a uh, sign of that commitment that in a sense they've already made and as a sign of that uh, as a public declaration of the work of Christ in their lives I say adult uh, in the Baptist church I went to growing up they were willing to baptize you know teenagers older older kids but you know not yeah. not like infants who did not have some kind of understanding of what they were doing from what I from my experience and from what I've heard I think it's definitely gotten looser in the American Baptist tradition, as far as how young they'll allow people to be baptized, where there are a lot of Baptist churches who have a very strict age of accountability that's fairly old. So people in their early 20s are the, are the ones getting baptized. You're not going to be baptizing a 13-year-old who's making a profession of faith. So, But I think from what I can tell, that would tend to now be more some foreign... Um, congregations, as, which I, I, as someone who do does believe that an infant baptism sees a natural progression, especially for well-established communities, because I think that uh, clearly the Old Testament, and I think very strong, like 
also the New Testament are very covenantal. And I think it can be difficult to try to establish your community over a very long period of time when you don't actually allow someone to be admitted into the visible church in a full way until their 20s. So I think the commands to raise your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that the promises are to you and your children, as well as trying to look at the theology relating to like circumcision and and baptism would be part of why I would be holding the more classic Presbyterian covenantal view of baptism, which still admits for infants, but denies baptismal regeneration. Right, right. So um, within this framework, it's more of, like you said, the covenant, just as the Abrahamic covenant was passed on generationally and symbolized by circumcision of the next generation, so too within Christian communities you have baptism of the next generation, symbolizing their um, inclusion in that community. Yes, and I think there's clearly in the Old Testament more of an emphasis on actual just lineage, sheer lineage. That's one of the central aspects of the promise to Abraham, and also the clear division between Israel and the rest of the world. So Israel, it was very much the ark (laughs) that is preserving the messianic line, and then the kingdom of God is now leavening the whole loaf. The gospel proclamation is going to the, the ends of the earth. So there's definitely a different emphasis in how people are incorporated into the covenant people of God. But I do think it's a mistake to then just to lose that sense of covenantal blessing and blessing to you and your children. Right. Um, right. Okay. Well, I'm curious then, uh, some, some thoughts on this, the relationship of baptism and so to speak conversion and even framing it that way is, I would argue, a more um, Protestant way of putting it. Because let me put it this way. If I'm a Catholic, I was baptized when uh, I was an infant. Let's say I go way off the rails and don't consider myself a Catholic or a Christian for a long time. Eventually, I come back. I probably will not be rebaptized because within that theology, um, uh, you know, baptism itself, the work of baptism itself was done. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll have some confession and some changes in my life to make, but I won't be rebaptized. On the other end of the spectrum, if I'm a Baptist and I was baptized, say, in my teens, and then I go way off the rails, and I'll probably have a bit of a crisis when I come back and say... And do, if, I bap- do I get rebaptized? Yeah, if I conclude that I probably wasn't a Christian um, based on my assessment of the fruits of the Spirit in my life, I might choose to be rebaptized. Within Protestant frameworks where infants are baptized, what do you do you know, later on in their life, how do you uh, ensure they're still part of the community, still in the faith, and what happens if they're not, and how do you think about those those scenarios? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, there's definitely more to support the infant baptism view than just that broader framework of covenantal theology. I don't have all the verses right in front of me right now, and it's a little bit, a little bit more nuanced of a conversation. So uh, we could we could just talk about this the entire time, and we there are other things that we also need to we have been touching on. But uh, one thing that struck me recently, not fairly recently, reading Romans, the very I forget if it's Romans three or four, where 
the circumcision of Abraham is referenced as a sign of his faith. And that struck me because clearly the clearly baptism is a sign of repenting and believing, being incorporated into Christ with the various commands uh, that we see throughout the New Testament. But to think, oh, circumcision also is a sign of one's faith. Okay, that's that's interesting because nobody was, well, no one should have been getting circumcised after they're, once they're an adult, they should be circumcised on the eighth day. So how is it that you really are supposed to have this sign of faith when you can't have faith yet, or most likely can't have faith yet? And I'd say it's just that class, that separation between the sign and the thing signified that a Presbyterian would want to have, or an Anglican, many Anglicans as well, that it can signify something while being temporally distant from it. So it's when you're baptizing a, ch a baby within this framework, you're, you're anticipating what ought to happen. And you're also, it's an, as much a, it's an obligation for you as the parent as well, baptizing your child for your own covenantal responsibility to raise them as to have faith. But they are, you also are marking them as being part of the church and that they're being raised in the church. They're not outside of the church as a child and later enter. They're being raised within the church. So that's, uh, there's just more of a comfort with that temporal separation between the, the sign and the thing signified. So if someone goes off the rails and doesn't do well as an adult and he comes back, I don't, it might depend on your, on the church, but there, I think there'd be plenty of churches that would say, no, you actually have been marked. You, you have been validly baptized. And so you're not getting rebaptized. Now you perhaps, perhaps you were born again this year, the year before last, that is the full ultimate realization of the sign that was put on you when you were a child. So like you wouldn't necessarily have to be recircumcised re right. as a Jew <laughs> yeah. if you were circumcised on the eighth day and then you go on, you're not doing so well, and then you come to a true dedicated right. service right. of Yahweh later. Right. Okay. Okay. That's it might depend, though. It might like, depend. You might have, mm -hmm. especially in America, mm -hmm. the Baptist culture, I think, is really ingrained in a lot of American evangelicals, so that would totally bleed into... Presbyterian circles too makes sense. Okay, so we touched on this idea too of um, so valid valid baptism, right? Um, what does that mean within uh, Baptist circles? Again, that's baptism by immersion of an adult believer. Um, within Catholic Catholics, actually, would recognize many, if not most, Protestant baptisms as well as Orthodox baptisms, precisely because of that ex opere operato theology that uh, so long as the baptism was conducted with water in the Trinitarian formula. Um, yes, they, but they, and uh, I, I don't want to speak too strongly on behalf of uh, our Catholic brothers here, but they can be pretty dang finicky about the formula. The formula, okay. They can really because so they do have this idea of ex opere operato that it does do it pretty much automatically 
on the for the infant and it doesn't need so the infant doesn't have to the parents don't really need to be faithful neither does the priest just the very nature of having the valid baptism causes right the uh, the baptism to be efficacious right. but there not that long ago there was a really big scandal mm-hmm. about a priest that for years baptized baptized with the formula we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit. And people freaked out. Right. They were like, oh, our baptisms aren't... If you were baptized by this priest, it wasn't valid. Mm-hmm. You did not have your, the remission of sins mm-hmm. because he said we instead of I. So there is a lot of care about the exact formula that has been sanctioned by the institutional Roman church. Got it. So there, it's... Uh, yeah. So they will, I think, often... A Protestant will get conditionally baptized mm-hmm. by Catholics, mm, just in case. Just in case right. it wasn't valid. Got it. Yeah, so they are they are a little finicky. A little, yeah, yeah, a little finicky there. Um, yeah, I wish Joel were here. I have some questions for him on that. But uh, okay, um, two things. So this idea of infant baptism, on arguably a dominant view in much of Christian history. Do we see it going on in the New Testament or in the earliest Christian period? Um, I think the, you, well, the straightforward answer is no. There's no clear infant baptism in the New Testament. That in itself is uh, easily explained within a paedo-baptist, or that's the, the term for infant baptist um, framework, because the church is being founded at this point. Right, it's the first generation. It's the first generation, and you're also not when a house. There are numerous references to entire households being baptized within the acts in acts, which people would read as perhaps implying that there would have been members of the household that were being baptized, and having that be more of a covenantal thing. Oh, you're in a Christian household, so you're being baptized. Mm-hmm. You're part of the church now. Um, but it's also not clear. So that's not going to be a very clear resolution to the conversation because Baptists will say, oh, there's no clear example. Presbyterian can respond, oh, that's an argument from silence. I wouldn't expect there to be infant baptisms because this is the very founding generation where they're, you're not looking at what they're doing with their kids. And, uh, the, on the other hand, it does seem like adult baptisms were very common in the early church. Mm-hmm. There are indications. I've heard people argue that Polycarp mm-hmm. was baptized as an infant because there's a reference to how long he was in Christ, how old he was, and then how long he was in Christ, which seems to indicate that he was baptized very young. Right, Polycarp, a very early martyr. Of the yes, church. very early martyr. I forget exactly when. Mm-hmm. Maybe. This- Early yeah. second century, maybe. Did he know John, or is that what was was going on? Or I think I think he knew John. Mm-hmm. I John the Apostle. Yeah. Right. So he had he was one of the apostolic fathers. That said, I know people might bicker with that example. They because I think there is a way to configure the numbers so that yeah. he was actually just really old when he was yeah. martyred. But uh, I think it seems more like at least from what I've seen, more likely that you that at least is an example of an infant baptism very early. Um, but I, 
it's it's a little it's a little tricky. I I recognize that it's a little tricky. Um, I think for me, the I find it important that people would be incorporating their children into the church and trying to do that fully and not separating them as if they're somehow right right alienating them in their youth and because i at least for me growing up within that sort of covenantal context it's very easy like you start having faith very young as a child like and that doesn't necessarily have to ever go away and uh so i don't think i think the age of accountability is an extra biblical concept that a lot of people have to come up with to know where like oh because otherwise it will start just going earlier and earlier when you baptize children because they can start believing at a very young age got it okay okay so that's one interesting question on this front i think another one uh one thing i'd like to dig into um is this question of well again throughout we've talked a little bit about the relationship of baptism to salvation some extremes of the view that baptism actually remits sins uh that i think both catholics and protestants would not approve of would be this fairly widespread practice early on of waiting to be baptized until you're about to die Um, i think constantine did which constantine did um so you got it's like your get out of jail free card that you use once in your life so right and uh i think uh both catholics and protestants would emphasize the you know, after after our baptism, we continue in the saved life, and we will continue to sin. But uh, there are ways to you know we confess, we bring that to to God, and uh, the Book of First John addresses this essentially. If anyone mm-hmm. sins, he has an advocate with the Father. Um, right. So it's not like you know you washed your white shirt once, and then it's just going to get more and more stained throughout your life. You can. Uh, yes, right. I. I do say that I understand why people would have done that in the early church when once you have this very high sacrament view of the sacraments because in a sense it is like you get a perfect white shirt and then you need to try to wash it until it later when you get stains on it and it's really it's really hard to maintain it in the same condition as you got it initially so and that's just how it works with clothes so let alone like the ways that we sin every single day right when we when we look to things apart from christ for hope for there are innumerable ways in which we can be faithless as christians and i think there's a lot more comfort in knowing that well that we are secure in christ um through faith and that it it does not depend on our own good works and this ties into yeah i i hate to be um expositing so strongly here on this podcast when we don't have any catholic (laughs) alternative but i think it really the, the view of the sacraments here really does connect into people's view of salvation pretty significantly mm-hmm. as to their the nature of faith and works mm-hmm. so i i do i would see this really high sacramentology that starts to clearly develop especially into po- the post post nicene mm-hmm. early church as one of the 
one of the problems that really led to a lot of error later. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's... When it was more of a vending machine. Right, view. dispensing grace. Yeah, dispensing right. grace. As opposed to... Right, okay. Okay, so that's interesting. Another question that comes to mind, some people waited till their deathbed to be baptized. What about people who didn't get baptized before they died, um, but in some sense were were believers. What do we think of those people? Uh, the example that really comes right to mind is the thief on the cross, um, mm -hmm. whom some people will point to Classic. in these debates. Who, you know, he's he's crucified. He doesn't have time to get. No one's going to baptize him, right? And he doesn't have time for that. But he, Christ promises him that he will be in paradise with mm -hmm. him. What's going on there from these different from these different approaches? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's a classic example. And uh, for for someone who believes that the sign and the thing signified are separate, then that's really not a problem because as long as someone truly does have faith in Christ and they are born of the Spirit, that's the substance. And that it's unfortunate that you didn't get the sign of that, right. but the, that really doesn't have any bearing on, onto your mm -hmm. salvation. It's a little trickier for someone who holds to a strict baptismal regeneration. I, I believe there's the concept of baptism by desire mm -hmm. among Catholics. I wouldn't be equipped to give you a, a yeah, distinct it's... articulation of that. I personally find it like a little bit of a cheat, mm -hmm. a, a, a get right. a little bit of a cheat where like, ah, uh, right. This like is... that's basically viewing it yeah. in the way that Protestants do just, yeah. This idea that, uh, yeah, basically if someone is unable to be baptized before they die, but desires to do so, then that in God's eyes that can count, so to speak, yeah. which, and I can see how that would come across as sort of like a cop-out, um, but at the same time, there, the within sacramental traditions too, it is often emphasized that God is not bound by the sacraments, but rather that they are the ordinary yes. means. Yeah, we by need, which... <laughs> need some pushback. <laughs> yeah. Right. God is not bound by the sacraments. He could save anyone outside, you know, yeah. outside those ordinary means. There's plenty means. of extraordinary right. grace. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't need, uh, he, he, God doesn't need baptism to save someone, but most people will need baptism to be saved yes. within this framework, uh, to put it that way. And this idea of ordinary means... I think holds within most Protestant congregations too, in it's which, ba true. yeah, even Baptist congregations. I remember, again, I was baptized growing up in a Baptist church and we had this class and basically it's like, you're a Christian, why do we need to be baptized? And there's this emphasis, baptism doesn't save you, but it is commanded by Christ and, you know, as a sign of our following yeah. him. Um, most churches will reserve communion for baptized believers. Um, mm -hmm. And so there, there is this notion that baptism is sort of the ordinary, typical means of Christian salvation, uh, not salvation rather, but of, how to put it, of, of, of the, so some will say it is the means of salvation. Others will say it is sort of the typical means through which the saved life will express itself to put it in, in that yeah. way. And sort it, of, it is the ordinary yeah. means of grace, like being incorporated and, uh, I think not having that sort of automatic association between the grace and the actual sign does not an it does not have to diminish mm -hmm. the honor mm -hmm. or the the reverence that is accorded to the sign. I think it often does. People do, but I don't think it should. If you look 
I think a good example of this is looking at the old covenant. And and I think the old if you look at how the nature of ceremony and symbols worked in the old covenant, I think it goes very well with uh, the pro, the, the Protestant the more common Protestant conception of the sacraments, because on one level, they're very, they're taken very seriously. Like there's, there's no doubt about it that this, the commandments in the Torah, it's a very big deal, the observance of these different things. And it's like, if you listen to how the law of God is praised, how in the Psalms, like Psalm 119 and the, all these different things, the ordinances, how the wise man meditates on them. And and this that would encompass all of the various commands of God. Not, But they also were very clearly pointing forward to Christ right. and a lot of their various manifestations. And so there are very solemn symbols, very solemn signs that um, were quite and actually are a grace that God gives us and gave them for our remembrance of, of right. the gospel. Like, it would be much harder. Like, if if you just didn't have any of these things, right. it would be much harder for us to right. focus on Christ consistently. And that sort of set apart nature. Like, no, you if you're baptized, you, you are baptized. You have been marked with this. Um. That is, that is a thing that's always there. It's not like your affiliation just can go in and out with like your mood in the right. same way. Where there there's still is this thing that's permanently with you at all times. Right. Like even if someone is wavering or not in the best position, they they have been marked with this sign. That's and, good. and if if you think about it, like it would definitely be different if you didn't have that. It certainly would. I think the language of just a symbol is sort of misleading regardless of whether you're using it to criticize that view or you're using it to represent that view precisely because you spoke of the old testament examples i'm just thinking imagine someone comes along and says oh you know um it would be great if we didn't use language and we just kind of intuited spiritually kind of communicated thoughts and you know just, just perfectly simple language just like... is just a symbol it's arbitrary you know <laughs> but being humans, as we are, limited as we are, these, so like you might have some two people who really understand each other well and don't need to, you know, uh, you know, say much to each other to get what they're saying. But the ordinary situation is, you know, people need to communicate need via via language. It's a mercy of God to give us right, right. We are limited. We are grounded in this world. There's this might be a danger of over spiritualizing things whereby, you know, the sacraments or means of grace kind of ground us in in, you know, objective both reality, both in the sort of physical and spiritual sense. To that end uh, this is on a slightly different tack, but some people might have the question, um, we've talked a little bit about this, baptism by immersion, dunking, so to speak, kind of going under the water, versus, you know, uh, if you see um infants getting baptized in many traditions it'll be more of a sprinkle a little sprinkle uh, a little sprinkle um what's going on there is that is that a major difference um i this this is a detail that i'm not quite as familiar with i don't think at least from the presbyterian view the sprinkling is valid so it's really 
it's not a huge deal. It's just because it's hard to dunk a baby. Some, it's a, it, it just seems wrong. And I've seen videos of Orthodox priests doing it, and it seems a little bit concerning. <laughs> so I think that's probably why there's not the full immersion for infant baptism, because the baby, like, for one, the baby gets really sad. But <laughs> two, it uh, seems a little dangerous. Like, it's a, like the, you might... The baby might breathe in the water or something. But the Baptists already think that's an invalid baptism. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, but as far as full immersion, I, th I think it's great. I, uh, I know if I were to be baptized as an adult, I'd probably want to do go right. whole hog. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. That's good. So there's this... Something real uh, classic to going down to the river. And... Right, right. Okay, so there we go. Baptism, baptism. Finally, I guess, uh, just to tie it all back together. When we say the creed, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, will all say it. We've talked a little bit about how, um, the, I mean, for the Catholics and Orthodox, uh, presumably, um, it's fairly straightforward how to understand this line of the creed, right? Um, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, right? Uh, I've been baptized and, you know, my sins are forgiven by that. That's how God's grace was communicated to me. How, how does a Protestant typically take this? Uh, how, how, how do I, you know, as a Protestant, recite this line of the creed? Um, is it another asterisk situation like with the Catholic Church going on here or what? I think... Uh, I think... For me, actually, I've thought about this, and it's a little bit trickier, I think, than the uh, the Catholic Church, because I think on a historical level, it's what was being meant by the creed wasn't anything remotely like the current Catholic Church that we think of when we hear the words. So that's why the asterisk goes there for a lot of churches, just to be clear to people, because uh, it would be easy for to misunderstand Um when it comes for the remission of sins, it's very similar to the phrasing of a couple verses in the New Testament. So I think even if perhaps some of the many, like many in the early church would have been understanding that phrase in a particular way that most Protestants would disagree with, it also is very closely mirroring some of the New Testament language. So I don't think Protestants would have a problem with that. Uh, right. Just they just understand it in the same way they understand those verses. It's really right. reflecting that close association between what what baptism means and the, and the actual the sign. So to speak again, between the baptism by water and baptism of the Holy Spirit, yes. there's just this very close link. Between, yes, because there, yeah. if there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit for for the gift for the forgiveness of sins, and it's just, um, and that's the true that's. The, the true baptism in the sense right for the record uh, I, I think most christian groups would affirm that uh you know christians baptized christians you know have uh received the holy spirit or have that baptism of the spirit as well some pentecostal groups will tend to emphasize more that last baptism of the holy spirit as um as a distinct thing as a distinct thing or as being accompanied by certain certain signs and certain yeah. spiritual gifts but I, I think there's something to making that distinction because there are clearly as, um, examples of regenerate individuals in the Old Testament that then get an anointing of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. An example would be Elisha asking for a double 
portion of the spirit that Elijah had. And it's like, okay, clearly Elisha already was a faithful prophet of God, servant of God along with Elijah. But there still is a sense in which the, the Holy Spirit can come down more heavily on somebody, work more powerfully through somebody. And I think he clearly, like, he's clearly worked through the Apostle Peter more heavily than he's worked through, I think, either of us. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. so I, I don't think there's an... Mm -hmm. I, I think there is something to making right. that distinction. Though there is even nuance there, and some people will emphasize, oh, baptism of the Holy Spirit or indwelling, rather, the presence of the Holy Spirit is true of all believers, but there's different degrees of being and experiences of being filled by him yes. and, you know, a new new spiritual power that comes of that. That might be that might be a slightly different conversation, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's an interesting one. It is an interesting it's one. It's definitely a different one. Interesting one. All right, Rory, any last thoughts, baptism? What, how can we, those who have been baptized, how can they, well, you, how should they think back on that? Those who might be looking to be baptized, what should they think of it? Right. I, to those who are seeking to be baptized, I'd say, go do it. Yeah. I've met a couple people who were putting it off a really long time, even though they were believers. I'm like, oh no, just baptize. When the Ethiopian eunuch received the gospel from philip he's like we can we can stop this chariot now and i'll get baptized <laughs> please baptize me in like in the water by the road i i think there's something to be commended about that as far as like it's it's a wonderful thing and we ought to seek to be seek to fulfill that command of christ and that's to have that symbol of union with him and his church uh, as far as people who have baptism already i think just uh think about like think about what it means <laughs> it's very easy just to assume it and at least for me it's, it's definitely been easy to not really think about it and so just to meditate on what it means to have been included in in the church and to and what does it mean to be faithful to your baptism right this isn't really an argument either way for infant or adult baptism, but, you know, the thing with adult baptism or baptism when you're a bit older is you can remember a bit more of it, yeah, and think back to it. But uh, either way, it always is a joy to see baptisms going on oh, at absolutely. church and see absolutely. people declaring. And even their, with yeah. different, I th even with some of these different takes on it, there we, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and uh, I... It's always a it's always a blessing to have fellowship and unity with believers who, and perhaps have some different conceptions of baptism, but we still have that central mark of unity. Let's yeah. Why don't we end on that note? Um, thanks for this conversation, Rory. We'll be um, we'll be back next time as we uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of the creed. Um, it's been it's been a oh, wow, yeah. year long year long series, but we're it's we're been a trek. There. Yeah, it's been a trek, but we're almost there. All right, thank you all trial for trial and tribulation. Trial and tribulation, um, not too much fire and sword, but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back next time uh, on Behold the Lion. Mm -hmm.